Hello and welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and today's conversation is going to be centered around a unique medication with a wide range of clinical applications. Today, we're going to be talking about pentoxifiline, and we're very lucky to be joined today by Dr. Robert Kennis, a professor of dermatology at Auburn University. For the June 2021 edition of Clinician's Brief, Dr. Kennis wrote an article entitled Top 5 Dermatologic Indications for Pentoxifiline in the Dog. And we're going to be sitting down and elaborating on that article with him today, learning a little bit more about the medication. Thank you so much for joining us. I know how busy you are. We really appreciate that you could make it today, Doc. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for for finding the time for me. (laughs) Uh, Before we get started, would you mind just telling the audience a little bit more about your background? Sure. I grew up in Michigan, um, which is cold and crappy. And uh, (laughs) after I graduated from Michigan State in 1989 and completed my residency, we moved to Hawaii and we lived in Hawaii for three years and then Made a, made a change for something different in academia and moved to College Station, Texas. And I worked at Texas A&M University for about nine years and, and got a great feeling for academic lifestyle. And then the job came open at Auburn University. And I've been here now for a little more than 16 years. And, and it's just been a, a marvelous place to work. And the people here are absolutely fantastic. So it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, I think you're pretty fantastic, too. I know you've won a number of awards, um, both at Auburn and before at Texas A&M, too, for teaching. So, like I said, we're really lucky to have you. And let's dive in. I'm kind of excited to have this conversation about pentoxifiline. It's, It's a really unique medication. Let's start with kind of a brief overview about the drug. So when I think about pentoxifiline, I always kind of focus on the effects that it has on red blood cell flexibility. Like in my mind, (laughs) this is kind of not very scientific, but I always think of it as, oh yeah, that's that drug that makes red blood cells more bendy. (laughs) And so, but really it has some immunomodulatory effects that I was totally unaware of before I read your article. So could you highlight the pharmacology of the drug? Sure, absolutely. One of the things that's kind of interesting is that this particular drug is in the same class as caffeine. So when we talk about um, some of the potential side effects, think about what taking too much caffeine can do to a body. I was going back and, and kind of having fun looking through some of the, the older literature, and um, Dr. Danny Scott, one of the world-famous veterinary dermatologists, proclaimed back in 2010 that pentoxifiline was heralded as the drug of the decade. It was touted as a miracle drug. And I remember being fairly young in my academic career, thinking, wow, we've got this miracle drug, but we don't know what the heck it does or how to <laughs> use it. And, and quite honestly, we're, we're still at that point. There's a lot that we don't know about this. And we'll talk a little bit about that later when we talk about specific diseases. But other than, than making the red, red blood cells much more fluid-like, um, they're able to perfuse and oxygenate smaller vessels. The other pharmacologic things that occur is that this particular drug has anti-inflammatory properties. And and this is kind of interesting. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about atopy and allergic contact dermatitis and the role of uh, pentoxifiline in working with that. But 
Generally speaking, it's anti-inflammatory, um, helps to decrease thrombus formation, and is going to help with improved circulation. And through some of the cytokine production, also potentiate wound healing. So Dr. Watson mentioned the pharmacokinetics and pharmacology. Generally speaking, there's a fairly broad dose range for this particular medication. Kind of the accepted range would be 10 to 30 migs per kg, twice a day to three times a day. But I really believe that this particular medication should be used three times a day for maximum efficacy. I know that owner compliance can be a real challenge for us when we try to go three times a day, but the pharmacokinetics truly support that. And generally speaking, if I'm going to reach for this medication, I'm going to target 15.15 mg per kg um, three times a day initially, and we'll see how the dog tolerates it and modify if we have to. Because one of our challenges as veterinarians is that we tend to dose our medications quite accurately for our patients compared to human medicine where you get a tablet regardless of your body size, body mass, or age. Um, we're much more consistent with our, our dosing regimen. And the challenge that we have is that pentoxifiline is only available as a 400 milligram tablet. And it's meant to be a timed released tablet taken as its entirety. But we do compromise and we can split this drug into half and, and potentially quarter sized pieces to try to accommodate it. And I don't know that there's any true data that has looked at whether or not breaking it in dogs is, is less effective, but it's standard practice and I do it. So just because I do it doesn't make it right, um, but I just want to share with everybody that this is kind of the uh, standard of what I would consider for using this particular medication. Yeah, those types of tips are really helpful. I know to me as a clinician, especially when I have a medication where I'm looking in a drug formulary and it's saying, yeah, give one to three times a day. Well, okay, do I give it three times a day because it's bad? Like if the if the you know condition is very severe, do I give it once a day if the condition is not so severe? So a tip like that is really helpful actually Thank to you. the audience. Could we talk a little bit more about adverse effects? You had mentioned, you know, um, kind of relating it to caffeine. Could you expand on that? That's really interesting. Absolutely. Um, generally speaking, the most common side effects we see with this medication in, in dogs is vomiting and sometimes even diarrhea, but, but vomiting is kind of the big one and um, maybe a reason why we need to stop the medication. Sometimes this drug causes dogs to be inappetent and sometimes a little bit lethargic. And because it is similar class of drug to caffeine, um, some people feel that dogs can potentially get hyperexcitable or have more rapid heart rate. In, in my personal experience, this particular medication at the dosages we use tends to be very well tolerated with regards to side effects. And for that reason, I'm quite comfortable using it under most circumstances. There are some data that I found that was alluding to the fact that this particular drug is excreted by both the kidney and the liver and uh, may extend its half-life if liver or kidney issues were a problem. Again, I personally have not seen that compromise my use of this particular medication. Um, generally, when we're reaching for pentoxifiline, we're reaching for fairly intensive medical conditions that are, are very important and, and worry less about whether or not the, the kidney is going to prolong the half-life by an extra 15 minutes. I think that would be fairly uh, trivial. But the drug is fairly well tolerated. 
pretty safe. I did come across a comment saying that if a patient had bleeding disorders, that it could be a problem, but I really couldn't find any substantiating data for that statement. Um, so I, I really wouldn't worry too much about that because when we think about things like vasculitis, sometimes there is thrombus and hemorrhage associated with it, and that's when we tend to reach for pentoxifiline anyhow. So I, I think that may have been kind of an extrapolation from some of the human literature because pentoxifiline is used in human medicine. Yeah, I had read that as well, and I had wondered about it. So bleeding disorders. What about um, any uh, drug interactions that you're aware of that might make it contraindicated? That's a good question. I, I really am not aware of any. I think that um, where we are likely to use this drug is in combination with several different particular medications. I think that is commonly used with glucocorticoids for many of the diseases that we treat. I think that we use it with doxycycline quite commonly when we're dealing with ehrlichiosis-associated vasculitis. And I know that people are using a lot of anti-itch medications that are available, and I've not found any data to support that there's any increased risk in using those particular problems concurrently. So it really does appear to be quite safe. I, I know I mentioned that it has some anti-inflammatory properties, but we don't really think of this drug as being quote-unquote immune suppressive. I would prefer to use that it's immune modulatory. This kind of goes back to your early question about thinking about the pharmacokinetics and pharmacology of that. And along with that, if you'll allow me to uh, elaborate a little bit more, some of the things about the anti-inflammatory properties of pentoxifiline is that it tends to decrease the T helper one subset of cytokines. And these include our tumor necrosis factor alpha, interferon gamma, IL-1, IL-6. And we think about the combination of interleukin-1, interleukin-6, and tumor necrosis factor alpha. These are acute phase proteins and can be triggered for many different causes and um, are associated with common clinical signs such as fever, inappetence, and, and wanting to hide away for when our dogs get sick. So the acute phase proteins will be suppressed by metoxifiline, um, which is one of its very important anti-inflammatory effects. The other thing is that it also decreases interleukin-8, which is a very important cytokine. It's called a chemokine because it brings other inflammatory cells to sites of inflammation. So when I started to think about how this particular drug could potentially be harmful from the standpoint of acute inflammation due to infection, if that patient was on pentoxifiline, at least based on the cytokine profile, then we may indeed have less effective neutrophilic attachment to the endothelium to get into the sites of inflammation, potentially decrease neutrophilic degranulation, and potentially could abate the body's best response toward an acute bacterial infection. But again, that would be one of those things where it's kind of almost more in theory than in practice. And, and I don't know that I would absolutely not give pentoxifiline in the face of a bacterial infection because uh, bacterial infections can be associated with vasculitis. So that's just some of the little bit deep immunology I guess I would consider myself a closet immunologist. One of the greatest things about being at Texas A&M University is that I got to work a lot with Dr. Ian Tazard, who is the uh, 
world's foremost immunologist, in my opinion, and the author of, of veterinary immunology textbook. And he's currently on the 10th edition. So um, it was a, a great opportunity to uh, expand my horizons in, in immunology. Yeah, uh, I think uh, given, you know, the the what everyone has gone through globally with the pandemic, immunology has jumped up pretty high on everybody's lists of interests recently. <laughs> so, so let's start kind of diving into your article. You, you know, you you list five indications for this medication, and and the first one is cutaneous vasculitis or inflammation of the blood vessels of the skin. So. As a clinician, you know, a dog walks in, what does cutaneous vasculitis, how does this usually present? And how do I, as a clinician, confirm that suspicion? Like what tests should I use when that animal walks through the door? Okay, um, the clinical signs are, are quite variable depending on how acute the process is taking place. One of the most common things that we see is erythema and the erythema tends to be fairly intense. Sometimes it's very diffuse where if we have a patient that comes in acutely ill with rapidly expanding erythema, we usually clip the hair from the margins and, and outline it with a marker with a Sharpie so that we can see whether or not it's continuing to expand. Because when we see a, a case presenting clinically, we don't know where we're at with the how far it is along the way in its development because some of these can become very severe. And with clinical vasculitis, we could lead to thrombus production and necrosis. And some of the cases of clinical vasculitis that I've seen have presented with very severe necrotic punctate lesions. Again, most commonly what we're gonna see is erythema. And, and we'd refer to this as a macule, which is a flat discoloration to the skin. And sometimes we'll see these present as what's called target lesions or bullseye lesions. They're kind of interesting. They're areas of erythema, they're erythematous macules with central pallor. And when we see these target lesions, we do think about cutaneous vasculitis as a differential. So one of the important things that when we have a dog that presents with erythema, we think about, are we dealing with the type of a vasculitis or could this be blood extravasation? So one of the first procedures that we'll do is we will take a glass slide and we will press it onto the skin surface and see if the skin blanches. The fancy term for this is called diascopy. If you were to just- <laughs> I knew that one, diascopy. There you go. So if you just push on your own skin, you can see that the blanching occur. And when I have a patient that the skin does not blanch with diascopy, my top differentials are gonna be vasculitis, extravasation of blood, hemorrhage, and cutaneous lymphoma. These are three things that don't tend to blanch when we do diascopy. So that's a, a very important part of your preliminary examination um, to be thinking in terms of can this be vasculitis or not. At that point, um, depending on the stability of the patient, we would want to consider uh, biopsy to confirm that there truly is inflammation of the blood vessels, but there are some times where we don't have a week to wait for histopath and we have to jump in. So sometimes we're gonna call a clinical presentation vasculitis, even though it may not be vasculitis, and we would jump in and, and consider treatment. So the, um, the biopsy is gonna confirm it, but the diascopy really kind of helps 
put that thought into our process that we we're, we're dealing with something here that may be pretty bad. And um, that simple technique is, is probably underused, under practiced. And it's kind of fun because we have a very large teaching hospital and uh, we're going to see a lot of the critical care patients that come through and um, getting to teach the residents and, and interns about diastopy and the role of helping to make a diagnosis of cutaneous vasculitis is really exciting. What about any distribution of the lesions that might clue you off? That is, is kind of a tough question because when I think about the things that can cause vasculitis, sometimes we could have more of a regional distribution. For example, if we had envenomation um, due to snake bite, sometimes it's distal limb, sometimes it's face. A lot of times when we have a drug-induced cutaneous vasculitis, it tends to be whole body. And, and the lesions are probably going to show up better on the uh, less haired area of the abdomen, potentially on the pinna, where there's less hair and, and the macules and the erythema might be more prevalent in those areas. But sometimes it's very diffuse throughout the whole body. So you did just name a couple of causes of vasculitis there, snake bite, envenomation, and um, drug a drug reaction. What are some other common causes of cutaneous vasculitis in the dog? In the South, and, and some of my best cases have been associated with Ehrlichia, um, tick-borne disease, quite common down in the South. And I put adverse drug reaction very high on the list. It's kind of interesting that as I go through and talk about cutaneous vasculitis with my students, that I'm showing all these different cases. And it's like, well, this one's because of amoxicillin clavulonic acid. And, oh, here's another one happened to be amoxicillin clavulonic <laughs> acid, different uh, and so, so is this one. Um, any drug, any day, any time. But right. um, as a clinician, when these cases present um, suspicious of cutaneous vasculitis, your your drug history is going to be really important because if it's vaccine induced, we we would run the risk of if that dog received a vaccine again down the road that they may not only develop cutaneous vasculitis, but they may develop vasculitis of the kidneys, liver, and get infarcts and potentially die. So our job is to kind of look at the things that can cause vasculitis and try to identify it. Bacterial infections can be associated with inducing vasculitis. So some of the very bad pyoderma cases we see present with raging erythematous macules concurrently and if we were to biopsy them, we would have both. And although I said at the beginning that um, potentially pentoxifiline could have a limiting effect on the neutrophils to do their job, I would still have no hesitation in using pentoxifiline while treating the pyoderma correctly. Many different spiders, bugs, any kind of envenomation. Going through the, the textbook literature, things that I personally have not seen, dermatophyte is listed as a differential for inducing cutaneous vasculitis, and I've not seen it. And also food allergy apparently has been associated with cutaneous vasculitis, but I, I personally have not seen that. So sometimes this stuff gets into the literature. It's a case of one that somebody writes in a textbook article, and it becomes cited and then mm -hmm. referenced, and it's all in this textbook, and then it gets reprinted. And next thing you know, it sounds like it's a very prevalent problem. But from my clinical experience, I've not seen those clinical entities. Usually when I see it, we're thinking about drugs, vaccines, and um, tick-borne disease, top of the list. 
And you did say that, except for that one little caveat to just be a little bit cautious maybe with bacterial pyoderma, that regardless of the underlying cause, pentoxyphylline is a great choice. So, you know, what about pentoxyphylline makes this the best choice, no matter what the underlying etiology of the vasculitis is? Well, one of the things about vasculitis is it it causes the blood vessels to not perform normally. And, and we're likely to induce clotting and, and thrombus formation, which could then lead to tissue necrosis. And necrosis is never a good thing. So the anti-inflammatory properties of pentoxyphylline make it just a, a wonderful drug to help improve tissue perfusion, oxygenation, decrease thrombus production, and to try to limit additional inflammation from occurring. So... Um, it's just a, a great drug to use for, for pretty much any suspicious case of cutaneous vasculitis concurrently while you're trying to identify and treat the underlying cause. And um, it has been reported that about 50% of the cases of cutaneous vasculitis are idiopathic. My personal opinion, I think that number is very high. I think that as investigators continue to search and look for the real underlying cause, uh, we're, we're likely to discover it because I think it's really essential that we find that cause and that source and try to prevent it from ever happening again because the next time could potentially be life-threatening and significantly worse. Take advantage of a unique opportunity at the 94th WVC Annual Conference. Earn up to 38 CE hours at this year's WVC Annual Conference, powered by Viticus Group. Take part in hands-on learning with leading veterinary clinicians and educators. Enhance your skills with industry standard techniques that can benefit your practice. Experience innovation through education at the WVC Annual Conference, March 7th through 9th in Las Vegas. Course sizes are limited, so register now at viticusgroup.org slash WVC dash conference. Let's move on from cutaneous vasculitis and let's talk a little bit about ischemic dermatopathies including canine familial dermatomyositis, um, which, correct me if I'm wrong, that's a specific type of ischemic dermatopathy, right? Correct. Okay. So as implied by its name, it's an inherited disease. So what is the typical signalment for that condition? Generally, um, this is a disease that tends to be more prevalent in collies and shelties, and um, there's no sex predilection and it is a disease process that tends to affect young animals. And this uh, particular disease is heritable, and the lesions can present very early on, but the lesions associated with dermatomyositis in the dog may wax and wane. So we may have a puppy that has clinical lesions that go away as that dog reaches an age where they may be moving to a new family, so the people inherit this dog not knowing the previous background, and potentially this dog becomes a champion and is used for breeding. And then down the road, the dog starts to develop clinical signs associated with dermatomyositis again. 
So the dog breeders have worked very, very diligently to try to get this out of the breeding population, and they've done a great job. We see it in other dog breeds. I've seen it in, in Chihuahua's mixed breed dogs and pretty much um, any dog breed. But it's, it's really neat when we look at these lesions to open up any textbook for an example of dermatomyositis, and all the dogs tend to look the same. Um, <laughs> we tend to see the lesions on the face. Mm -hmm. They tend to be a very non-inflammatory alopecic area that is very well demarcated and can look like a bacterial infection or dermatophyte infection. And one of the really interesting things is that if you were to look at that lesion and take a Sharpie and outline the area of alopecia, for some reason, these dogs develop a hyperpigmentated area around these alopecic areas. And it really does look like somebody took the Sharpie and, and drew it around the alopecia. Several years ago, one of my students went into the exam room and met my client, and they came out and described perfectly dermatomyositis. And it was a chihuahua and walked in and looked at the dog and went, wow, that looks exactly like dermatomyositis. And it was based on histopathology. So um, the clinical signs are, are quite impressive. There's really only been one case in my entire career that I've seen that has been so bad that we needed to do immune suppressive therapy in addition to pentoxifiline. The lesions themselves are fairly boring. Um, sometimes we'll get some crusting. The other thing that's important to know about the lesions is this is one of the lesions that can affect the tips of the tail. So when we think about ischemic lesions, the tail, the tips of the pinna are areas that can also be affected. But dermatomyositis, we, we kind of think of it as being face, uh, bony prominences, again, where the vasculature may be compromised, and tips of the tail. And, and the disease can wax and wane. It can look really bad. It can look really good. It's a very interesting disease. In people that have dermatomyositis, they frequently have the myositis component. But in our dogs, we don't tend to see the myositis. It's usually just the dermato part. And occasionally when we do our biopsies to confirm the diagnosis, sometimes we get a good deep sample and we get a little piece of our muscle in our histopath sample and we may see myositis. But myositis in the dog is, is not a, a real prevalent problem in most of our cases. That's interesting. And so when you're using pentoxyphylline, we're really, we're looking at the benefit on treating the cutaneous lesions, not, doesn't sound like so much the muscle lesions, but I guess I didn't realize that the muscle lesions didn't really seem to cause a problem in dogs. So you taught me something new again. <laughs> so the, the pentoxyphylline is really going to help with the tissue perfusion. That's really mm -hmm. kind of what we're targeting at this point because the, the lesions and histopath of dermatomyositis of the dermato part is fairly non-inflammatory. So um, steroids are, are usually not recommended or needed. I mm -hmm. guess if we did have that myositis component, that would be a little bit different. As kind of an extension of that, are those lesions generally pyritic or not? They are generally not pyritic and actually quite quiescent when you look at them. I think some of them may resemble a scar and have kind of a shiny scar-like appearance. And because uh, there's compromised vasculature, we may see a little crusting formation due to microthrombi forming focal areas of necrosis. But usually, they're non-critic. It's, it's more of a clinical observation. 
So uh, most of our patients with dermatomyositis lead a, a good, healthy life. They just may have some crappy-looking lesions occasionally. So another example of ischemic dermatopathy that you know I have seen multiple times is the rabies vaccine-induced vasculitis. Although I will tell you, so I've been in practice since 2003, and I feel like I saw this a lot more early on in my career than I see it lately. Am I crazy or have you seen that too? <laughs> Do you think something's changing in the vaccines? <laughs> That's a, a really interesting thing. Because we're a tertiary referral hospital, a lot of routine stuff that general practitioners see on a regular basis, I never see. I mean, mm -hmm. it's very uncommon for me to see a cat bite abscess. It's pretty uncommon for me to see dermatophytosis unless there's additional circumstances where it might have been overlooked. With respect to the, the rabies-induced vasculopathy, I would say the same thing. I just don't see that many of them, and I think it has to do with our, our general population. From our limited knowledge, it was only associated with rabies vaccination. So I, I'm not sure if vaccination technology has changed to the point where we're not seeing it. I think it's fascinating your observation that it doesn't seem to be as prevalent. It's one of those things where I teach our students about it, and, and basically their question is, well, do we have to warn the client every time we give them a rabies vaccination? And, and the answer is no, it's still fairly uncommon. On our derm final today, the students had to identify which dog breed was most likely to exhibit rabies-induced mm. vasculitis. Is it and Chihuahua? Dogs, pardon? Is it Chihuahua? Um, it's, it's usually <laughs> poodles and, and dogs mm. that need to have their hair clipped. Dogs mm. whose hairs grow long enough that they need to be groomed are more likely to develop this. Hmm. The um, poodle breeds, I, I would say, are probably top of the list, but I, I've seen it in miniature schnauzers. They're a breed that needs to be clipped, but we generally see them with short hair, so we don't really think about that very much. But luckily, we don't see it a whole lot. My big concern is that if we have that local reaction that occurs, what happens the next time you give that rabies shot? Right. And, and again, the potential is we could potentially induce a whole body vasculitis reaction. So generally, I encourage the clients to talk to the state veterinarian petition to not continue to give rabies vaccines at that point. And uh, then the client would be obligated to take on that risk if that patient ever bit anybody down the road. Um, but I do think that there's long-term health risk. And I really hope you're telling the truth when you say you're not seeing it as much because that I, no i'm i'm not i you know and maybe it has to do with the fact that they're extending out the interval between rabies vaccines a lot of places now instead of vaccinating every year you know vaccinating every three years you know or, or maybe it was just some sort, certain type of adjuvant that was yep. used or or a different genome sequence you know i guess with the the covid vaccine and, and my friends that received it, the variability between what happened, mm -hmm. anything from a, a sore shoulder to being out with flu-like symptoms for five days, I would kind of correlate that to the individuality of the reaction to our dogs receiving vaccination. Yeah. So when we're using pentoxyphylline for some of these dermatopathies, you had mentioned that lots of times we're using them in conjunction with corticosteroids. Do you think they have a steroid sparing effect? Can we decrease the dose maybe of glucocorticoids that we need to use? That's a really good question. There's actually very little data to support that. Um, some of the very early publications, again, going back to 
the one that Danny Scott wrote many, many years ago, talked about using it as a steroid sparing effect. But again, this is the miracle drug that really doesn't do miracles. And I think that generally speaking, there are certain diseases that are going to need steroids. And, and I don't know that I would say that it truly is steroid sparing. I think it could be adjunctive. I also think that we need to be very cautious with our use of steroids concurrently with antoxifiling when we treat certain diseases. And, and one of them would be pinnal vasculitis, where the dogs develop necrotic ear tips because of thrombi that occur and the downstream necrosis. And um, steroids are generally contraindicated and especially topical steroids because if you apply them, they can cause the vessels to become more friable and to actually bruise and, and become more damageable. So when it comes to pinnal vasculitis, I don't like steroids. Depending on what disease I'm seeing related to cutaneous vasculitis, um, most of the time I'm not going to use a steroid. I'm going to try to avoid the use of steroids, but there are certain ones that, that do respond better. And, and the biopsy can help tell us the extent and severity of and the type of inflammation within the blood vessels and help us decide whether or not um, steroids would be helpful or not. If we were choosing not to use steroids, are there any other immunosuppressants that you reach for? Well, it, it would come back to you know the underlying cause. So for example, if we had Ehrlichia in a dog, we could use pentoxifiline along with doxycycline. Doxycycline has anti-inflammatory properties as well. So you already have kind of a synergism there. The question is, are steroids going to make a difference? And um, that becomes a judgment call. If it's a drug-induced cutaneous vasculitis, I try to not use steroids because whenever we have an adverse drug reaction, any other drug, including glucocorticoids, can potentially exacerbate it. So I tend to prefer to be more conservative in my approach. And quite honestly, what I, I tell my students is that they should think of cutaneous vasculitis like they think of pancreatitis. It's an inflammatory response, but steroids generally are not indicated. So your final two indications for pentoxifiline um, in the article were conditions that I had never even thought of using this medication for. Um, so, and those are and conditions we see all the time, namely atopic dermatitis and allergic contact dermatitis. So these both these conditions um, are the result of a hypersensitivity reaction, but they're really two distinct diseases. And sometimes I think there's confusion about that. So could you talk about the similarities and the difference between contact dermatitis and atopic dermatitis? Sure. Generally speaking, when we talk about atopy, we talk about a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Uh, we refer to that as an immediate reaction. But over time, it may also develop a late phase reaction. And that late phase reaction would mimic allergic contact dermatitis. So from a clinical standpoint, there may be similarities in the presentation. From an immunologic standpoint, our atopic dogs um, exhibit a T helper 2 cytokine subset, which would be interleukin 4, 5, 9, and 13. And these cytokines favor the production of IgE. IgE is the immunoglobulin that binds to mast cells. And when we inject our specific allergens during an intradermal skin test, they cross-react and cause the mast cells to degranulate, releasing histamine and wheel and flare formation, 
classic type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Allergic contact dermatitis is a delayed hypersensitivity reaction. It's called a type 4 hypersensitivity, and it has a completely different cytokine profile. These are referred to as our T helper 1 cytokines, and they include interleukin 2, interferon gamma, and tumor necrosis factor alpha. Now, these particular cytokines are directly decreased due to pentoxifiline. So uh, when pentoxifiline first came out as the miracle drug, it was actually being used to treat atopic dogs. And some of the very early studies were used for, with pentoxifiline and various steroids to see if there was a steroid-sparing effect, which you alluded to earlier, and also in conjunction with antihistamines for milder cases. But the profile and effect of pentoxifiline is actually much more beneficial for delayed hypersensitivity reaction. Allergic contact dermatitis in the dog is generally pretty uncommon, and it has to do a lot with the fact that to induce these types of reactions, we need intimate contact with the skin. So people, for example, that wear jewelry and and may have a, a silver hypersensitivity, intimate contact for very prolonged periods of time. And for the most part, our dogs are covered with hair. And the hair is a protective barrier that prevents intimate contact with the skin. So where we're most likely to see true allergic contact dermatitis is due to topical medications, especially in the ear. Prolonged use of ear medications can cause this intense erythematous type of reaction along with associated inflammation. And it's one of those things where uh, a lot of times I'll get these referral cases and the dogs are cytologically clean and they have intense erythema of their ear pinna and we stop the topical therapy and they get better. So that would be an example of allergic contact dermatitis. For some dogs that are housed on concrete runs, when the concrete runs are being frequently cleaned with bleach, the bleach can free up the metal ions and induce a allergic contact reaction in our patients. But generally speaking, allergic contact dermatitis is pretty uncommon. Um, kept mentioning that I was the author of the article. It was actually in conjunction with my my resident, um, Dr. Sarah Lewis, and her mom is Dr. Diane Lewis, one of my colleagues, friends, and outstanding veterinary dermatologist. Diane um, helped to write some of the very early articles about allergic contact dermatitis in dogs. So um, the, the family lineage is, is quite impressive. And um, Diane's had quite an impact on veterinary dermatology for many, many years, and we're just thrilled to have Sarah on as our resident. So the the thing about these two diseases is that they're both associated with paritis, and clinical signs can overlap because, again, chronic atopy can lead to this kind of intense erythema that we tend to see on the ventrum that looks like allergic contact dermatitis. One of the dermatopathologist that I worked with many years ago made the observation that he could not differentiate a dog with atopy from a dog with true allergic contact dermatitis based on histopathology. Um, So histopath does not differentiate it. The clinical signs, the type of hypersensitivity reaction induced, and the cytokines that are released are the reason why we have these drugs and and the overlap in our particular diseases. So um, Generally speaking, early on, pentoxifiline was used extensively for treating atopic dogs. I don't know too many people that are using it anymore for that reason. 
I think that it still plays a tremendous role if we make a diagnosis of allergic contact dermatitis. And um, even some dogs that may be at risk, for some dogs that develop allergic contact dermatitis to something in the environment like plant where they may be potentially intermittently exposed, giving pentoxifiline long-term may be preventative in helping to reduce those clinical signs. Well, I'm thinking... Sorry to interrupt you, but that was going to be my next question really quickly. So no, no, if you have a case, you know, where you have the contact dermatitis, you are able something like an ear medication where you're able to withdraw, you know, the, the offending substance, then how long do you keep them on pentoxifiline? Well, I would say as long as they're at risk of exposure. I, I think that this drug is, is pretty safe. I don't know of any true long-term risks or side effect associated with pentoxifiline as long as the dog is tolerating it without the common side effects that we mentioned early on. For, for people, um, one of the risks is, is poison ivy. And I know that mm. there are some people that get very, very severe to potentially life-threatening poison ivy. And I've not really looked into the literature to see if pentoxifiline has been used in people. But as we elaborate on, this, on these questions, that's another thought that, that maybe this is something that could be investigated in people as well. Yeah, that's, uh, my mother was one of those people. She would get horrible, horrible poison ivy. We're, we're from Iowa originally. And I swear if she, it was like on the side of the road and she walked by, she had it. <laughs> it's, it's crazy that dogs don't get it, mm-hmm. but they can transmit it. So yeah. a lot of times um, people will get poison ivy from their dogs and mm-hmm. the dogs were out in the woods and they come back in and they sleep with the owner. And next thing you know, we got poison ivy and the clients never went into the woods. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, so now I live and practice in Las Vegas. And so I've been in Nevada my entire career since 2003. And that is one thing I don't miss. I don't miss poison ivy. <laughs> okay. So sorry about that little detour there. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's fun. Well, I just kind of wanted to talk about, because you had mentioned it just briefly, you know, using pentoxifiline alongside when we're using it for atopy, um, or if you decide to use it alongside other things, especially kind of newer medications like oclacitinib or the monoclonal antibodies, anything to be aware of there, any concerns, drug interactions? I'm not aware of any drug interactions. and, And quite honestly, Pentoxifiline is not a drug that I personally am going to reach for for treating atopy. One of the things that I try to do is to limit the amount of medications that I give our patients. And um, it's not uncommon for our derm patients to go home with four or five or six different things. There's an ear flush, an ear medication, yeah. there's Apical. a shampoo, there's, yeah. a rinse, <laughs> there's a pill for this and an antibiotic for that. And um, trying to keep our owners to be compliant one of my jobs as being the old vet is to try to limit the amount of drugs that go out the door to try to keep things simple. So um, again, for allergic contact reactions, I think pentoxifiline clearly is going to be stellar in that um, situation, but I'm very skeptical of its benefits for our typical atopic patient. 
Good to know. So I'll make sure that I'm not putting that at the top of the list. <laughs> have, have you personally used pentoxifiline for your atopic patients? I had not. I had not even thought of that until I read the article. And thank you so much for crediting Dr. Lewis, too. I did not mean to forget her that she was a co-author on this wonderful article. And again, anybody that wants to read it for themselves, they can check it out in the June 2021 edition of Clinician's Brief. So this, you have answered all of my questions. It's been so wonderful. But before I let you go, Doc, there is a little game that we play at the end of um, our podcast. Uh, it's, it's totally just for fun. There's no right or wrong answers, but it's a way for our audience to kind of get to know you and maybe get inside your head. So I just ask you some really easy, would you rather questions? And you tell us the first thing that pops into your mind. Do you want to play? Absolutely. All right, let's get started. So first off, would you rather have to practice without your woods lamp or without a video otoscope? Um, I would practice without the woods lamp. I love doing trichograms anyhow. Yeah, I, I, I love our video otoscope. It's a great teaching tool and um, it makes me a better dermatologist. All right, would you rather find out that the kitten that you were just snuggling is covered in ringworm or would you rather have a client want to show you their rash? I've seen them all. Um, <laughs> I personally snuggle with the cat. Um, I'm a cat person and I don't tend to get dermatophyte anymore. I think it has to do with my many years of exposure at all cat practice. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I would prefer snuggling with the dermatophyte cat. As opposed to seeing the rash. I think a lot of us would agree with you. <laughs> You'd be surprised at how many rashes I've seen, though. Oh, right. Yeah. They want to show you right away. And it doesn't matter where it is. <laughs> They're not shouting. Well, it's kind of nice that they do respect us as doctors and they feel comfortable <laughs> with that setting. So we should kind of respect that, that that's a good thing. Would you rather treat the pet of your favorite actor or your favorite athlete? Um. I think I'd rather treat the pet of my favorite musician, um, oh. but uh, I, I'm a music person. I, I don't tend to watch a lot, a lot of TV um, other than fishing videos on YouTube and cooking videos. But yeah, I, I would prefer to do my favorite musician's pets. All right. That's a good one. Would you rather remove a cuterebra or an oral polyp? I'd rather remove an oral polyp. Cuterebras gross me out. Um, and I'm glad you didn't say maggots because I might throw up. Um, I think it was the greatest thing when we discovered that night and pyram can be given to get rid of maggots. Um, mm -hmm. That made me very, very happy. That was one of the few things in veterinary medicine that can make me vomit. I think both of those things, the videos on on that go around Facebook and everything, they're both so satisfying. They're always those, oh, I can't believe you got to do that. <laughs> Pop that cuterebra out of there. <laughs> okay, last question. And I always save the most difficult and most important question for last. And that is, if an octopus were to wear an article of clothing on the end of its tentacles, would it wear gloves or would it wear shoes? I think mittens. Mittens. <laughs> you have changed all of it. You've added a third option to all my either-or questions. It's okay. Learning, it's learning the questions. We love yeah. having it. Yeah, having I can't it. imagine an octopus walking around with a glove. Um, <laughs> mittens, maybe, but... Mittens, maybe. Yep. Yeah. Mittens or socks. Okay. 
soften the blow a little bit. All right. So as we wrap up, are there any other uses for pentoxyphylene that you see, you know, on the horizon or some more off-label things that we wouldn't really expect or think of this drug, you know, first for? Yeah, there, there are some things. I tend to reach for this drug in fairly unique situations. And one of the times I reach for it is when we're treating discoid lupus erythematosus or symmetrical lupoid onychodystrophy where the dogs are sloughing multiple claws off of multiple digits. I think the toxophylline for its anti-inflammatory role and its helping with uh, microvascularization could be beneficial as an adjunct. And oftentimes those dogs are on multimodal therapy. And that's kind of a challenge when we look at true studies with pentoxyphylene because oftentimes it's not a sole therapy. So there's not a lot of good data to say we believe that this drug is truly doing one thing or another. So it makes the data a little bit more difficult to evaluate. We did have an interesting case just a few weeks ago by one of our residents who had a, a relatively healthy Labrador retriever that developed an elbow callus that became infected. And it was a pressure point, just the way the dog happened to lie and it got to be infected. And we're treating it topically and it really wasn't responding as well as I expected to. It looked like it was a wound that just didn't want to heal, even though we were making progress with the infection. So we did start the dog on pentoxyphylline as adjunctive therapy, and within a few weeks, we saw significant clinical improvement. Cause and effect, I don't know. Maybe it was just coincidental, but it, it did seem to, uh, to make a difference. And, and you know, for, for wounds that are not healing well, um, for things that, that maybe need some additional therapy, I, I think you should not be shy about trying pentoxyphylene. I think you've got very little to lose. It's very cost-effective. It tends to be very safe. And um, I think cumulatively, we just need to pull our heads together and start sharing cases more. I think that forums that are available at continuing education seminars, uh, roundtable discussions, because I just mentioned a case N of one, and there might be my colleagues out there that have seen 50 similar things and all of a sudden we're saying, yeah, we, we might have something here we should share with the rest of the public. So um, don't be shy about sharing your cases and, and responses with pentoxyphylene or even bad responses because right now that's kind of the way that we're going to be able to best disseminate our knowledge because there's really not a whole lot of ongoing clinical studies. Thank you so much for that. So. This was fantastic. Maybe someday you'd be able to join us again. I'd love to. This was fun. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to our podcast on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Clinicians Brief and on Instagram at clinicians.brief or drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery, sound by Randall Stupka and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson.